and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you're watching us on Counterpunch Plus, thank you so much for the continued support. Uh, independent media is so critical, especially now, especially given everything that's happening in the world, Central Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, so many things happening. You got to keep your eye on all of them. And unfortunately, the mainstream press often doesn't allow you to do that. So that is what Counterpunch is here for. We've been around for almost 30 years. If you want to support us and you want to have access to all of this great content, go to the website, get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus, and you will have it. And um, so with that, I am very excited to have this chat today. Um, it's been several years since I chatted with my guest, but um, he is one of the preeminent scholars in his field. It is Dr. Rashid Khalidi. He is the Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies at Columbia University, co-editor of the Journal for Palestine Studies, author of many books, including most relevant for our conversation today, the most recent book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. Dr. Rashid Rashid Khalidi, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for all of your work, of course, but particularly for this book. Let me just uh, throw it up there, I guess, in case people don't have a copy and they want to get a copy. That's the book. It's so important. It's so important. Let's just begin with a little bit about the history of the Khalidi family, if we could. Tell us a little bit about your family, some of your ancestors, how they came into contact with early Zionists and early Zionism, and uh, how that is really relevant for understanding everything that's happened since. Yeah. Um, well, I, I come from a family that um, has lived in Jerusalem for many centuries, probably since before the Crusades. We're not sure about that certainly since the Crusades. Um, and that has played all kinds of roles, uh, especially in judicial affairs and sometimes political affairs uh, in Palestine over many, many years. Um, so an ancestor of mine happened to have been uh, a member of the first Ottoman parliament that was elected in 1877 uh, and later was mayor of Jerusalem. And he, uh, a man named Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi, um, was uh, teaching in and studied in Vienna, uh, where he obviously learned about uh, Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern political Zionism. And uh, as mayor of Jerusalem and as a deputy for Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament, he knew about the very earliest stages uh, of Zionism, political Zionism, even, even before Herzl established uh, uh, with the first Zionist Congress, the modern Zionist movement. Um, and so he wrote a letter the year after um, Herzl's the first Congress that was, was held in Basel, actually, in Switzerland, uh, to Herzl, uh, warning him of some of the problems uh, with um, the Zionist project, which Yusuf Al-Khaldi obviously knew a great deal about um, from his residence in Vienna, from his, uh, having looked at his private papers, I know that he was getting Austrian papers, he was getting papers from all over Europe. So he was up on what was happening in terms of the founding of the modern Zionist movement. Um, and I start the book, actually, uh, with a description of an uh, exchange of letters uh, between uh, Yusuf Al-Khaldi and, and Theodore Herzl. Um, so that's, you know, part of the beginning of a connection, um, as it were, between, between members of my family and, and, and the very early, earliest uh, leaders of, of the Zionist movement. I had other, other members of the family who were involved in, in different ways. Another, another relative was a member of a later Ottoman parliament where he spoke about Zionism, the problems of Zionist, of Zionist colonization of Palestine, um, a man called Ruhel Khaldi, 
who was also deputy for Jerusalem. Um, my uncle, even later in the 30s, um, was exiled by the British for his opposition uh, to the British colonial project and to the Zionist project. Uh, he had been elected mayor of Jerusalem and the British exiled him for many, many years, first to the Seychelles Islands and then to, to Lebanon. So, I mean, various members of my family over the past, I guess, century and more uh, have had uh, an involvement with the politics of this issue um, at different levels. And then my family obviously was affected. I mean, I, I, my, my father and mother uh, traveled to Palestine planning to go back there to live uh, in 1947. And then the 1948 war came along. My grandfather lost his house. And my, my father and mother ended up staying in the United States. And that's where I was born. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, my family and, and like most other families in Palestine have been directly affected uh, by uh, events there in, in, in relation to this process of settler colonialism. Yeah, it's fascinating reading through the beginning of the book because you find that uh, these you know ancestors were not only coming into contact with Zionist settlers, but were engaging on a theoretical level about Zionism and understanding even the material conditions that were driving Zionism at that time, the oppression of Jews in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't as if there was like, you know, visitors from another planet all of a sudden. No, no. I mean, one of the remarkable things about um, the way Palestinians have related to Zionism is that this is not just true of members of my own family. That, that many of them, at least, had a very clear understanding of what was going on. They read the European press. And so the bromides and the pablum that the Zionists fed uh, to disguise their real objectives, which were to turn Palestine into the land of Israel, um, didn't wash with many people because they, they actually knew what was being said at the Zionist Congresses. They knew what was being said in English and in German and in French. Um, I mean, this comes through not just through members of my own family. I, I also use the memoirs of, uh, in fact, my wife's grandfather, who was a newspaper editor um, and founder or co-founder of one of the leading Palestinian newspapers, a newspaper named Palestine. Um, and he wrote extensively about this, uh, as did others in his, in his newspaper. Um, and I've looked at other Palestinian papers from this period. And so there was a, there was a, a quite a high awareness of the dangers for Palestine and for the Palestinians um, that the Zionist movement represented. The idea was not to come and live alongside Palestinians or to come and live as a minor Jewish minority in a majority Arab country. The idea was to reverse that demography, create a Jewish majority, and make it make Palestine a Jewish state. And that meant the Palestinians were to be sidelined at best. Um, and Palestinians, many, many of them at least, understood this from very early. And that, that's one of the things I try and show in the book. There was not a benign intention, you know, for coexistence. There was a there was a there was a clear intention to come and take over the country and make it into a Jewish state. Otherwise, there's no point to Zionism. If you want to live as a minority, you can live as a, a minority anywhere in the world. And that is in, in, in the analysis of many of these Zionists. That's the problem. Um, so you come to a country that's already inhabited and that has a large Arab majority. And you want to turn it into a Jewish state with a Jewish majority, you are going to do some pretty drastic things to the existing population, necessarily and inevitably. All of the bromides and all of the pablum and all of the, the completely false talk, uh, uh, notwithstanding. 
And to that point, actually, um, one of the things about the book that I really appreciated, not just obviously the content, but I appreciate the structure of the book and the chapters and the way that it frames the discussion of the issue, As and we're talking over a hundred year period, it frames it as a war on Palestinians, right. not as a conflict between right. Palestinians and Jews or between Palestinians and Zionists, right? And this sort of discursive framework, I think, is very critical because right. it changes the way that we talk about this issue. Well, one of the things I'm trying to do with this is to crack this ridiculous uh, uh, formula whereby it is seen as it's like Germany and France. It's not like Germany. This is not just two peoples. There are now two peoples, certainly. But there is a structure to this. External intervention makes Israel possible. The Palestinians are not just fighting Zionists, the Palestinians are fighting the entire might of the British Empire in the 1930s. 100,000 British troops, the Royal Air Force. Zionists play a minor role in that great suppression, the suppression of the great Arab revolt of the 1930s. Uh, you can talk about any phase of this conflict, and you're talking about Britain and France together with Israel fighting a war in 1956. You talk about Israeli leaders coming to Washington to get permission to wage war in 1967 and 1982, with American weapons in many cases. So <clears throat> I, 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 I frame this as a war to establish this project in Palestine, organized and, in many, and, and endorsed by the great powers um, through the Mandate for Palestine, through the Partition Resolution of 1947, through various other international efforts uh, which means it's, it's not just the Palestinians up against Israel or the Zionist movement. It's the Palestinians up against the United States or the United States and the Soviet Union or Great Britain at the height of its imperial power. And I, I therefore am trying to wrench people away from what I think is an entirely false equivalence between the two sides. First of all, there's no equivalence between them. The Zionist project is always backed by the big battalions externally. Secondly, um, yes, you now have an Israeli people. Yes, you now Zionism has a national aspect, but it is also a separate colonial project, just like North America, just like Australia, just like Algeria, just like South Africa, to replace and dominate the indigenous population uh, with a new population brought in from outside. Now, the fact that those people have a connection to the land is obviously material and important, religious and, and, and so forth, but it do, that, that does not and should not obscure the fact that as far as the late 19th and early 20th century was concerned, these were Europeans who came in with a European mindset of superiority over and contempt for the natives to take over the country from the natives. And all of the tropes that are used in early Zionist uh, portrayals of Palestine are very similar to the tropes used by other colonial uh, um, projects uh, elsewhere in the world in the 18th and 19th century. So, I, 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 ins I insist on framing it in this way, N not because I think this is a you know a smart polemic. I think that is actually true to the reality, as in fact the Zionists themselves saw it at, at that stage. Um, colonialism was in good odor. Colonialism was a good thing in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. The great powers were all colonial powers. The great powers all had European populations, which they sent out to take over and seize the lands of indigenous people. That had happened in North America. It had happened in Australasia. It was happening all over Africa. Kenya was a separate colony. Rhodesia was a separate colony. South Africa was a separate colony. 
France had established a settler colony in Algeria. And as far as those powers were concerned, in 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930, colonialism was a good thing. It improved the natives. It was meant to elevate them. And that, that's exactly the rhetoric that the Zionist project used, as well as, of course, a, a claim to Palestine on religious grounds and other. So it's a, it, these are not identical. I mean, I'm not saying that South Africa and, and Palestine are the same. They're not the same. But in certain respects, it's important to understand that there are, there, there are elements here which are quite similar. And to say that this is a settler colonial project is not to do violence to the self-understanding of the Zionists themselves. I quote in particular uh, one of the leading Zionist theoreticians, a man called Zev Jabotinsky, who founded the train of thought that produced most of the recent prime ministers of Israel, Begin, Shamir, uh, Ariel Sharon, Netanyahu, are all people who follow in the tradition of Jabotinsky. And he talked explicitly about this is a colonial conflict. These are, uh, this is an indigenous population which is going to resist as long as we intend to transform Palestine into the land of Israel. So he was blunter and more honest than a lot of these uh, uh, Zionist leaders who pretended otherwise. They, they knew, if you read their diaries, they knew. Herzl knew. Ben-Gurion knew. Weizmann knew what they were doing. But they talked differently. They didn't want to alarm the British. They didn't want to alarm the American public. They didn't want to alarm the Arabs. Um, and so basically, there, there, was a, there was a great deal of deception uh, involved in the projection of what was going on. And that deception continues to this day. I mean, when you say colonial settler, people are offended. But that's how people talked about their own project. Um, the Jewish colonization agency, that's not some anti-Semitic appellation of, of, of a, a major uh, institution that was involved in, in, in the settlement of Palestine. This is what they called themselves, the Jewish Colonization Agency. Um, and the quotes from Jabotinsky and others uh, are you know, what they were saying themselves. And uh, to just kind of segue, based on what you were just talking about, Jabotinsky and others, how are some of the, let's call them political and social attitudes of the early Zionists, how has that imprinted itself into the fabric of Israel? Because so much of that early uh, 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 views, worldviews, attitudes, racial and otherwise, are in many ways manifested in the current policies of the current state of Israel. Right. Well, I mean, the first thing to understand is that even though the Jewish population of Israel is very mixed, it includes populations that uh, fled or were expelled from the Arab countries. It includes populations which are not originally European. The dominant ethnic group was originally uh, Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. And they were Europeans. They had European attitudes towards non-European peoples. Uh, and they were part of a colonial project uh, headed by and with the muscle provided by Great Britain, which had European colonial attitudes towards non-European peoples. Um, that was the mindset of the early settlers. That was the mindset of the British. Uh, they were superior and the locals were inferior. And the contempt uh, of, uh, of um, the early settlers, not all of them, obviously, some of them saw the reality and understood that there was a problem with it, but most of them, uh, and certainly of the British, for the local population, is something that's sort of imprinted in the dominant social strata of Israel as it develops. Um, uh, and and the, 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 the defeats of the Arabs, the successive defeats of the Palestinians first and later military defeats of Arab countries uh, contributed to this contempt. You know, look at them. They can't organize themselves. Look at how weak they are. Look at how, in, in spite of their numerical superiority, uh, we've been able to, you know, once again and again, uh, defeat them. 
Um, so I think that that's, that's there in Israeli society. And in fact, those attitudes uh, induce a certain kind of self-loathing among many Mizrahi Jews, among many Jews of Middle Eastern backgrounds. They assimilated the ethos of the dominant European ideologies that were current in Israel, the Eastern European nationalism, uh, which, of which Zionism is a part. I mean, it grew up essentially in Eastern Europe among the development of socialist and nationalist ideas of Russia and Poland and Ukraine and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and so those were the dominant political trends and the dominant ethos of, of, of early settlement in Palestine. And they continue uh, right through the modern Israeli state. And you see it even in uh, discrimination and treatment of Mizrahi. You see it in in discrimination right. towards Ethiopian Jews who claim right. a trem- you know year centuries of lineage uh, with the Jewish uh, traditions and so forth. And yet they're somehow not quote unquote Israeli enough. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of wonderful scholarship. I'm I'm not an expert. There's a lot of work by people who have Yehuda Shanhav, many other people uh, who have worked on this and uh, uh, who are themselves of Oriental backgrounds, Mizrahi backgrounds, um, and who have shown, uh, exactly as you're saying, that even though these, these populations are integrated into Israel and are welcomed in Israel, uh, they're treated as second-class citizens and they're, they're uh, obliged to adopt uh, attitudes and mindsets and, and, and a way of speaking Hebrew. Uh, you know, the, the Ashkenazi pronunciation of Hebrew is the, is modern Hebrew. Um, people in Syria, people in Yemen spoke Hebrew with a different accent, an accent that's closer to the way Arabic is spoken, because they were also Arabic speakers. Um, all of those kinds of changes were uh, imposed by the dominant culture. Um, w- w- the United States is a society of immigrants. And, you know, you can see in the second generation how kids become American in their accent and their outlook and so on, even if their parents are still speaking the language of the old country. And, so forth. and that's what happened um, with uh, Mizrahi Jews, with the difference that there was, a, there was a contempt for where they came from and therefore for their culture and their background. I mean, they were seen as backwards and they were treated as if they were backwards. Um, and so their successful assimilation into Israeli society involved the adoption of the dominant ad- attitudes and outlooks. Uh, uh, prevalent in society. I'm not an expert on this, but it, it's definitely the case. Indeed. Before we head to the break, I just want to talk very quickly about this issue of uh, uh, a war on Palestinians, because obviously it's in the title of the book. And um, of course, we're going to get to the resistance here in the next part of our conversation. But Talking about war on Palestine, it's not just a physical war against Palestinians. There is a war to erase a culture, to erase Mm -hmm. a people, and essentially to, for lack of a better word, exterminate Palestinians, right? And so the question of killing Palestinians, killing them physically, this is obvious, this is apparent, but there are other forms that this war takes, right? Cultural Mm -hmm. forms that it takes, social Mm -hmm. aspects to it. Can you talk a little bit about how this has happened and elements maybe even using maybe some examples of appropriation of Palestinian culture that is by its nature a way of erasing it? Right. I mean, I would stress this much more than I would stress actual killing. I mean, there is killing going on. There was a lot of killing in 1948. There was killing in 67. There's killing in Gaza. Um, but it is a, 
as in all of these settler colonial projects, uh, the aim is to take over the country and to eliminate the cultural existence and, if possible, the history uh, of the indigenous population, not necessarily to exterminate them, uh, push them out maybe, uh, as happened with, with, uh, with Native American populations. At the outset, the idea was take over the land and push them away. Uh, uh, later on, there were, there were campaigns where many people were killed in, in North America. But the project is to take over rather than to exterminate. And it, sometimes extermination is part of it, but that's not, that's not to my way of thinking central, at least not in the Palestine case. Um, but, but what is central is to eliminate the idea of Palestine and to replace it with the idea of the land of Israel. And this uh, includes things like changing the geography. Every Palestinian place name is replaced by a Hebrew place name. Every uh, 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 historical site is renamed and reappropriated as something that fits into a, a, an exclusively Jewish history for the land of Israel. Um, and whole epochs and eras are skipped over in the way in which archaeology is taught and showed, in the way in which the museums operate, in the way in which digs take place. You'll, you'll bulldoze a, a, a millennium to get to a second temple level. Uh, and, and that's just one example of how um, the place and the place names and the, 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 the indigenous population's relationship to the place are, are eliminated uh, as part of a replacement of Palestine with the land of Israel. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm quoting again from Zev Jabotinsky because that is what's going on. And that's you see that in the nation state law of 2018. It was passed by the Israeli Knesset and has the force of constitutional law. Uh, there is only one people with the right of self-determination in Israel. And of course, the understanding of Israel by most Israelis is the entire land of Israel, i.e. all of Palestine. So there's one people. There. So there's one people with rights. And therefore, that people has both religious privileges, has legal and political privileges, and is the only one entitled uh, to do all kinds of things, including decide what your, the name of a place is. Um, so that's, uh, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, as, as you suggested, all, other form, all kinds of other forms of cultural appropriation. Um, now, sometimes these are disguised. So North African Jewish cuisine, which is North African cuisine, is described as Israeli cuisine. Uh, a Palestinian dish, maftul, is described as Israeli couscous. Uh, uh, pita bread suddenly becomes Israeli. Hummus, hummus in Arabic. Hummus is an Israeli uh, delicacy, and so on and so forth. So are falafel, so are. These are these are superficial examples, but uh, you see this across culture. Uh, you see this in terms of the appropriation of kafis. You see it in, in, in Palestinian embroidery. You know the, peop the people in the shtetl didn't embroider this stuff. The ancestors. Uh, uh, nor did they, nor did those who come from North Africa or, or Yemen or Iraq or Syria embroider this. This is Palestinian embroidery. Suddenly it becomes Israeli. And you have Israelis swanning around in fashion shows, dressed up in Palestinian embroidery. Uh, this is uh, cultural appropriation. I mean, we, we, we see it happening in, in, in North America with Native American culture um, and, and, and in Native American, uh, in, in other, I should say, colonial uh, uh, settler regimes. Um, and it is part of a process whereby the very name of Palestine is, is it comes to be seen as controversial and dangerous. Um, teaching about Palestine 
the history of Palestine, seeing the country as Palestine, is seen as hostile and even anti-Semitic. Well, wait a minute. If, if this is if there's two peoples here, then there's an there's an Israeli Jewish history that ha- that can be understood, and there's a Palestinian Arab history that can be understood. But in the most extreme version of this, as it, for example, history is taught in Israeli schools, Palestinians don't exist. There is no Palestinian history. There's a history of the Jews in the land of Israel. And there are various periods in which the Jews play different roles, but it is a history of Israel and the Jewish people. And that's what people are taught, Arabs and Jews, in Israeli schools. And that's the most extreme example of this elimination of, 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 of the native and there's like a whole falsified history of that too. There's been books written, I mean, famously from Time Immemorial is one example, but there are right. others that essentially make the argument that Palestinians don't exist or to the extent that they do exist, they're a creation of the King of Jordan or the Egyptians or the, or British, some, or or the British or something along those lines. Right. Or they're, 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 uh, they're nomadic migrants who came in to benefit from the prosperity brought by Zion. Yeah, I mean, that was a bestseller endorsed by some of the, the, the most prominent luminaries of American intellectual life. That book that you mentioned by Joan Peters from Time Immemorial, it's basically a one long slander of the Palestinians and their very existence. Um, you know, you only have to go to some of these places and look carefully at what's left in terms of architecture. Go to Jerusalem or go to Nablus or go to Hebron or go wherever you may go the villages that remain. I mean, 400 Palestinian villages were demolished, but in the West Bank and in some parts of Israel, you have, you know, thousand-year-old villages um, that were not inhabited by crusaders or Jews or other foreigners. They were inhabited by the the ancestors of the present inhabitants. Uh, It's very clear that there is a people here, or at least there's a population here with roots in this country. And uh, the, the way in which the history is written by so many people completely elides that, completely obscures that. And replaces it with another history. Okay, we're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about resistance, some of the forms that it has taken, how it has evolved, and a lot more to discuss. And if we have any time at the very end, I want to I want to ask Dr. Khalidi his thoughts on some recent developments. But uh, mm-hmm. enjoy the music, and we will be right back. This is for Palestine, of course, the capital of Jerusalem. Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them. Suppression is a question. Resistance is the answer. Long live Palestine. Long live Gaza. Palestine, of course, the capital of Jerusalem. Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them. Suppression is a question. Resistance is the answer. Long live Palestine. Long live Gaza. All you see is war every time you turn your head and Bloodshed on the floor Mother cries, who cries for her this time There's truth between these walls See the lies between the lines They hide where the bullets coming from From the tyrants dressed in our disguise I'm gonna ride until the end Even if I get a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we not gonna stop the Palestine is free But still you know that I'm a ride until the end even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we're not gonna stop the Palestine is free Talk to not love, talk to be blind, talk to not care Tell me what's real, borderline military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Talk to not love, talk to be blind, talk to not care Tell me what's real, borderline military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Free, my people long 
are back chatting with Dr. Rashid Khalidi. Again, the book, let me just hold it up for my CP Plus viewers. That is the book. You got to get yourselves a copy of The Hundred Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. It is a must read and I will particularly say for any of my any of my fellow uh, people of Jewish background, Jewish ancestry, this is a particularly useful book, especially if you were indoctrinated with a lot of propaganda as I was, as many others were. Um, this is really useful, really important and something you can share with your own children and grandchildren so that we can hopefully have a better understanding of all of these issues. Okay. I want to ask you a little bit about resistance because the book mm -hmm. isn't just a, a documentary of the tragedies uh, that have befallen the Palestinian people. It's also about resistance, some of the forms that it has taken. So can we talk a little bit about that trajectory? Uh, what was Palestinian resistance in the early years? How did it, how it has it sort of evolved since then? And then, you know, kind of maybe bring us forward to today. Right. I, I think it's important when you talk about this to, to, to put it in context. Um, every colonial power uh, meets with resistance. Every settler colonial project, which is aimed at settling a new population at the expense of the native population, meets with resistance. And every colonial power uh, and every settler colonial project has a whole vocabulary for denigrating uh, the natural native resistance to what is being done to that population whether they're called criminals or they're called bandits or they're called terrorists. This is what the British called Indians who resisted British rule. This is what the British called Irish people who resisted British rule, and British settler colonialism. Um, this is what the French called Algerian so who resisted uh, their domination in Algeria. And this is what the, how the Zionist project has coded uh, Palestinian resistance to a project intended to take over the country and which the Palestinians naturally resisted. Some resisted more than others, some resisted violently, some resisted in other fashions. Um, and the, the means of resistance are myriad. Um, there were outbursts of violence uh, in 1920, 1929, and then a huge revolt in 1936. But in between, there were all kinds of protests and marches and demonstrations and uh, petitions and delegations and conferences and meetings to attempt to bring the British uh, to their senses and to show them that what was underway was something that the Palestinians couldn't accept. It meant taking over their country and turning it into a Jewish country. Um, and that, that range of forms of resistance tends to be obscured um, by the very important uh, periods in which there was considerable violence, either against the British or against the uh, settlers. Israeli settlers, Jewish settlers, uh, in the period leading up to 1948, the establishment of Israel. And resistance to the establishment of Israel by Palestinians, uh, which was crushed ultimately, even before the 1948 war starts and the Arab armies become involved. Th there's fighting all over Palestine, and the Palestinians are uh, dramatically and totally defeated. Um, so this armed resistance and other forms of resistance, boycotts, demonstrations, strikes, and so on, um, form a panoply, which is rather similar to what other, other uh, indigenous populations subject to settler colonialism engaged in. Uh, the Irish invented the term boycott. Uh, Captain Boycott in 1880 was boycotted because he was, he was the agent of a, of a, of a British lord uh, who owned vast tracts in Ireland and was taking over the properties and treating the Irish poorly. 
um, people all over the world picked that tactic up in India and South Africa, later the American South. Um, and the Palestinians did it as well. Um, and there are many other tactics that were adopted from India or from Egypt or from, or from Ireland or from other, other colonial possessions of European powers that were used. Uh, and that continues to this day. I mean, people will focus on the violence of Hamas or the violence of uh, the PLO back in the day when it was engaged in armed struggle and not recognize the fact that all kinds of other forms of resistance were, were also uh, being waged. Uh, again. And, 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 and the most important thing, I think, is to see this as resistance to a process which is intended to dispossess uh, an entire population. Um, this is not a, this is not an unacceptable, illegitimate reaction to legitimate rule. This is a reaction to something that is fundamentally illegitimate, which is the appropriation of our entire country, the appropriation of people's property, um, which is continuing to this day. I mean, we see it in Sheikh Jarrah over the last several months. Yesterday, the other day, uh, uh, several months ago in May, there were you know outbreaks over uh, appropriation of property. But this is going on all over Palestine over many, many decades, uh, certainly since 1948. Um, and uh, when people's property is stolen, when their homes are taken away, when their homes are demolished, when they're expelled, uh, their reaction will sometimes be violent and sometimes not be violent, but there will be a reaction. And that has to be understood as resistance to a process, which has to be seen in its, in its, in its essential nature, nature as a settler, settler colonial takeover systematically over more than a century now. Uh, of, of the country, turning Palestine into the land of Israel, in the words of Jefferson. One of the really interesting things about uh, examining the history of Palestine is is seeing the role that it played, or maybe that it was thrust into in the context of the Cold War. Can you just speak right. a little bit about Palestine and its uh, sort of place within the Cold War dynamic and maybe the Soviet Union and its shifting positions on Palestine and how that impact, I mean, I guess this is the main point of the question, how that impacted the trajectory that we've seen over the last, you know, right. several decades. Right. Well, the Soviet Union plays a very interesting role here. Um, at the outset, um, the Bolshevik Party is not, is not favorable towards Zionism um, or not most nationalisms. Zionism is, among many other things, a national project, obviously. Um, but something changes after World War II, and for a variety of reasons, Stalin decides that it is in the interest of the Soviet Union to support the establishment of Israel. And so the Soviet Union joins the United States at the United Nations in supporting the creation of a Jewish state in most of Palestine uh, under the Partition Resolution of 1947. Um, this could not have happened without joint American-Soviet arm-twisting, bribery, and bullying in the General Assembly. Both countries were, were, were involved and responsible. And it was an American-Soviet uh, initiative. Britain was not in favor. Britain, Britain abstained in the vote on partition, in fact, in 1947, when the resolution was passed. Um, this was an American-Soviet initiative. Uh, and the United States and the Soviet Union then competed to see who, which of them could support the new Israeli state after it was established in May 1948, the most vigorous. Both sent weapons. Soviets through a Czech arms deal, the United States in a variety of ways, where surplus war material was channeled to Israel, armored personnel carriers, planes, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and both immediately recognized the new Israeli state. Both failed to recognize the Arab state that was supposed to be created 
in a much smaller part of Palestine by that resolution. Um, we're not unhappy to see that Arab state disappear. They didn't care. What they wanted was a Jewish state, both countries, the Soviets and the Americans. Um, that honeymoon between the Soviet Union and Israel did not last very long, uh, only a few years after 1948, when Israel joined the Western coalition in Korea uh, in 1950-51. Um, the Soviets were disillusioned. And very soon after, relations became very much worse. And eventually, the Soviet Union came to back a variety of Arab countries, starting with uh, Egypt and Syria in 1955, and really continuing until the end of the Cold War. So uh, even though during the 1956 Suez War, the United States and the Soviet Union ended up on the same side again, though a different side, both objected to what Britain, France, and Israel were doing in attacking Egypt in 1956. Um, from that point onwards, really, the Soviet Union tended to back the Arab, several Arab countries and the United States more and more tended to back. Uh, and so the, 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 the conflict between the Arab states and Israel came to track, or at least several Arab states and Israel, especially Egypt and Syria, came to track with the Cold War uh, and came to be seen, especially from the 60s onwards, as a vital arena of Cold War competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. And that continued right up to the end. There's so much more to say about that subject, but we will run out of time if I continue with that. So let me just move on very quickly. Um, can we talk a little bit about Israel's political trajectory in recent years as it moves uh -huh. further, seemingly moving further and further to the right? I mean, Netanyahu is an obvious sort of uh, high watermark there, but I want to talk about that in the context of what we're what we are uh, living through now and what may potentially be coming. I mean, I'm not going to get into speculating, but it's entirely possible we'll see a return of Donald Trump in 2024. And that would obviously impact relations with Israel in various ways. So can we talk a little bit about Israel's political trajectory moving as far as it has to the right and uh, what that means for the Palestinians? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to speculate about what may be coming, but I think we can we can certainly see that there has been a shift further and further rightward of Israeli politics. I mean, if you go back to the 1982 war, when Israel invaded Lebanon, as many as 15 to 20,000 people were killed, most of them civilians. Um, Beirut was besieged for several months. The Sabra and Shatila massacres took place. There was an enormous reaction inside Israel. Of opposition to the war. Some of the biggest demonstrations against the 1982 war took place in Israel, among Israeli Jews. Um, you fast forward 40 years, and you see Palestinians beaten to death or shot on the ground and, or, or, or other horrific uh, examples of how the Israeli military treat the Palestinian civilian population. There's not a peep out of most sectors of Israeli society, these things have been normalized and have come to be accepted by at least a very broad cross-section of Israeli opinion. So there has certainly been a move to the right. Um, and it has to do with a more religious nationalism. It has to do, which is, you know, I mean, if you say, this land is my land, God gave this land to me. That's the theme song of the horrible movie Exodus. But if that's your starting point, there's no room for talking about anybody else's rights. This land is my land, period, full stop. God gave this land to me. You can't argue with that. You can't talk to that. And that's the basis of religious nationalism. There's, a, there's a, obviously a Palestinian parallel to that. And again, the, the, no discussion is possible with somebody who holds that, that mindset. They can move away from that mindset. But as long as they hold that mindset, there's nothing to be said. 
And um, those people have grown in importance in Israeli politics, as have settlers. Um, you know, the first settlements are established by labor governments in the, in the late 60s. But over time, that religious nationalist uh, sector of Israeli politics has become identified with the settler movement. And you now have seven or 800,000, probably closer to 800, maybe even more than 800,000 Israeli citizens living in illegal settlements in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, um, which is not coded as the West Bank or occupied territories in Israel. They're Judea and Samaria. They're part of Israel. As far as Israelis are concerned, they're part of Israel, whether legally they have been annexed or not. In practice, they have been incorporated. Into Israel. Israeli law applies to Israelis operating anywhere in former mandatory Palestine between the river and the sea, the Israeli telecommunications networks, roads, taxes, uh, sewage, everything applies to them. They are Israelis living in Israel, whether they're in the occupied West Bank or East Jerusalem or whether they're in Haifa or Tel Aviv. Um, and that worldview, which sees the occupied territories as part of Israel, was not, that wasn't there in 1960, there's, there's been a fundamental change as, as religious nationalism has become more important, as the settler movement has become more and more powerful in Israeli politics. I mean, think about it. When you have 800,000 800, citizens in a population of whatever it is, of 6 million perhaps Israeli Jews, um, that's a lot of voters. That's a lot of people that politicians can't take for granted or ignore. Um, and that wasn't the case when Rabin was prime minister in the, in the early and mid-90s. Um, he could take positions uh, against the settler movement, which were broadly popular with Israeli public opinion. I mean, he was assassinated by a, a supporter of the settlers. So you could go just so far and it cost him his life. But um, it, it, the views were possible in the 80s or 70s or 90s, which are simply impossible today. People who hold them are a fringe. This was a prime minister. Now, he was no opponent of settlement, but he was hostile to the settlers in many, many respects. He wanted to cut their funding. He was not favorable much of what they were doing, understanding that they were fundamentally opposed to what he was trying to do, which is to figure out how to do a deal with the Palestinians. Um, I can talk about how limited that deal was, but that's another issue. Uh, just talking about this shift to the right, um, I think that Netanyahu plays an enormous role in that, uh, personally, and his predecessors, uh, uh, whether Ehud Omert, or whether Ariel Sharon, or whether Yitzhak Shamir, or whether Menachem Begin, each of them helped to bring Israel further and um, and we now are in a situation where there's a coalition government, which is there essentially because of the hostility to Netanyahu among people, many of whom agree with him ideologically. So it's a government that includes people who are to the right of Netanyahu, people like the Prime Minister Bennett. Ideologically, he is you know, a soulmate of, of, of Netanyahu in terms of not recognizing that there's a Palestinian people, considering there's only one people in the land of Israel, the Jewish people considering the Palestinians have no rights, desiring not to negotiate with the Palestinians, not accepting the idea of a Palestinian state. Those are mainstream views in Israel today. Uh, they weren't 30 years or 40 years ago, uh, or at least they, they ceased to be at a certain point, and they now are again. Um, <clears throat> there was no recognition of the Palestinians in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, I should say. Um, there was a great joy at the fact that the Palestinians had disappeared or appeared to have disappeared after 19. Um, but over time, partly because of the first intifada in the late 1980s, Israelis grudgingly recognized that there was somebody there who couldn't be mastered and just disappeared. Um, and that, that understanding has, is gone now. Israelis have closed their minds off. There are walls that close them off from the Palestinians. There are bypass roads so they don't have to see the Palestinians. 
Only Israeli soldiers deal with Palestinians and border guards and police. But ordinary Israeli citizens don't see them. And they don't see them literally or metaphorically. Um, they don't exist. Uh, and that's new. Uh, there, was a, there was a realization that they were there for several decades, and that's gone. And that's part of this rightward shift. And another part of the rightward shift that is important for our purposes here is in understanding the ways in which the Israeli state is let's say, changed its appeal internationally, right? The Israeli state, as it's moved further right, it has lost many progressive Jews. It has lost many uh, even, you know, moderate Democrat Jews, we might call them in the United States. Um, And in its place, it has sort of appealed to this right-wing evangelical Christian movement in the U.S. and other right-wing movements internationally, strongman right-wing dictatorships, etc. So the nature of Israeli international support seems to have changed along with the Israeli sort of political trajectory. And, uh, you know, if people of my generation, and especially those younger than me, I mean, I'm already approaching 40, but people who are in their teens, in their 20s now, I mean, they have a very different conception of Israel. I'm talking about Jews, young Jews, have a very different conception of Israel than even I did when I was uh, growing right. up like 25 years ago. Right. I think that's true of many people, many younger people in the Jewish community. I think you're right. Um, you know, they, they didn't grow up in the shadow of the Holocaust, as did older generations, and for whom the fragility and the existential danger to the Jewish people was foremost in their minds. They had just come out of an attempt to destroy the entire Jewish population of Europe. Um, they didn't grow up in the wake of the 67 war when people believed Israel was on the brink of extermination. It wasn't, we know that. I, I document in great detail how everybody who knew anything in the United States or military or the American intelligence services, or for that matter, Israeli military intelligence services, knew that Israel was in no real danger. Of but who believed it? And I know people of my generation for whom this was formative. You know, the background of the Holocaust was there. But what happened in 67, when Israel could have been destroyed, eliminated, exterminated, a second Holocaust. I mean, the, the rhetoric was, was omnipresent. Um, that's how people in their 80s, 70s, 60s, and 50s grew up. Uh, that's not true of the younger generation. Israel is a superpower. Israel bullies its neighbors. Israel is not seen uh, as a tiny, beleaguered, uh, weak, uh, uh, victimized uh, uh, little outpost among a sea of, of hostile Arabs. I mean, yes, there are people who write ludicrous stuff, like a woman who wrote something in the nation that Israel was threatened by Arab countries that wanted to destroy it. Israel has eight Arab countries that have diplomatic relations with it, including two of its most important neighbors. No Arab government has said anything about destroying Israel for about 40 or 50 or 30 or whatever years. Um, so there is a generation of people brainwashed to believe that Israel is an existential danger at every moment of its existence. This justifies their doing anything. But young people don't believe that. They know that Israel is a nuclear superpower. They know that Israel has bombed, well, they may not know the details, but it's bombed seven Arab capitals in the past 50 years. The Arabs have reason to be scared of Israel. Israel doesn't have that much reason to be scared of the Arab states, not in existential terms. Terrorism, yes. The possibility of a clash, yes. Um, the, the, the danger to, 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 to individuals, yes. Um, but no existential threat. Uh, though there are politicians like Netanyahu who spent their whole career beating the drums of existential threat. And, you know, in the old days it was Iraq or before that Syria and Egypt. Now it's Iran. Um, but for young people, I don't think that most young people 
not just in the Jewish community in general. I, I don't think that resonates anymore. They see the imbalance is really in Israel's favor rather than uh, at Israel's expense. And they understand that Israel is, is really uh, in an extraordinarily powerful position. And, and they see more and more, at least, what is done to the Palestinians. In just a couple of minutes that we have remaining, I want to just ask you very quickly: uh, What uh, I mean? Imagine you're speaking to uh, you know a, a lecture hall of your students or whatever, and you wanted to impart some wisdom uh, about this issue and what they might be able to do, how they might be able to contribute something on the issue of Palestine. Uh, what might you suggest? Well, I'd say two things. The first is that if they're American citizens, they should understand that the United States is not a neutral bystander. The United States puts its big fat thumb on the scale in favor of Israel, which already is dominant, not just in Palestine, regionally. Israel is a superpower. There's no Arab country that can stand up. And Israel completely dominates the entirety of Palestine. And the United States is complicit in that. The United States is not a neutral. The United States weapons are used to maintain the occupation. The United States money is meant, is used to build illegal settlements and steal Palestinian lives and expel Palestinians from their property. We are doing that. Our government does that. Our private 501c3s that are treated as charities, that are friends of the Israel Defense Forces or or, uh, groups that channel money to illegal settlements uh, are are things that we do. I pay taxes so those people don't pay taxes in order to send money to support the Israeli army or send money in order to support Israelis. Uh, So that's the first thing. We are complicit. We are involved. And we have to decide, do we want to do this or not? Or to what extent do we want to do this? Do we want to uh, obey U.S. law, which says that American weapons have to be used only for defensive purposes? Is bombing an entire building in Gaza defensive purposes? Is the use of American weapons for that purpose therefore illegal? Should we bring that to the attention of our elected representatives in Congress or let them keep talking about Israel's security as Israel kills 10 or 12 or 15 Palestinians, uh, innocent Palestinians for every innocent Israeli? That's us. That's a decision for us as American citizens. That's the first thing I would say. This is a political statement. This is not a, I wouldn't say this in a lecture hall, but I would say this if anybody asked me my views, my personal views. The second thing is, do we expect the same principles to be employed in Palestine as elsewhere? Do we accept that one group has rights to be exercised at the expense of another group? Do we accept fundamental inequality and discrimination as the basis of uh, the way things are done in Palestine and Israel? Or do we insist on the same kind of principles of equality, which we may not have been able to fully uh, carry out in our own country, but which are supposedly the ideals of, an, of, of any democratic society? Uh, and those are things that are lacking in Palestine. Uh, most Palestinians, the Palestinians in the occupied territories have absolutely no voice in any important decision about their lives. Can they come in? Can they go out? Can they import? Can they export? Can they move from here to there? Israeli soldiers, Israeli bureaucrats decide everything important about Palestine. Yes, they can govern their own sewage. They can decide on their schools, but the Israelis can enter their schools or enter their universities and arrest whoever they want. So we have to decide, do we accept that as something that we are supporting, which is in violation of the principles that supposedly uphold this nation? All men are created equal and so on and so forth. Uh, because of some, you know, well, Israel's special, or because of the Holocaust, or whatever excuse may be given. Uh, If we allow them to come back, they'll overwhelm, whatever. Um, So I I think you have to say, you know, principles of justice and principles of equality have to apply everywhere. 
have to figure out how to apply them, obviously, but they apply everywhere. First, secondly, and firstly, as I, as I started by saying, we are complicit and involved in what is happening. We are doing it. It's not just the Israeli pilot of the F-16, it's the American government that sells that F-16. It's such an important point and, and something that we all really do need to think about. I know we're out of, we're just about out of time. I'm going to ask you a very, very, very large question that I don't expect you to address all the nuances of. But and if you can, do you think that we are now entering a period where the Middle East is fundamentally changing in terms of the orientation that we've known for decades, right? The post-war orientation of the United States as making and breaking everything that happens in the Middle East seems to be changing. The Chinese are selling to the Saudis, the Turkeys in Africa, Turkeys in Syria, the Russians are in Syria. Is the Middle East changing and has U.S. hegemony declined? You know, I I write about current events and I write about modern history, but I've always said that the job description, I am a historian, however, and I've always said that the job description of a historian does not include predicting the future. I have no idea in answer to your question. It certainly seems that some aspects of American post-World War II hegemony have receded in the Middle East. That certainly seems to be. Um, Does that mean that in the 2020s, the United States will cease to be the dominant power in the Middle East? I really don't think that that's the case. I do think the United States has enormous residual power, um, financial, economic, military, and other soft power. Um, But is that beginning to change? May well be beginning. Um, with the rise of China, with the greater assertiveness of India and Russia, maybe one day if they ever get off of get, get their act together, the Europeans. Um, but how that will impact the Middle East, I couldn't possibly say. Uh, it will probably sooner or later, but sooner could be not very much sooner and later could be very much later. Um, you know, the connection between the United States and Israel is an old and very strong one. And the United States, uh, operates as if it's on autopilot in so much of its foreign policy. I mean, we cannot get over our hostility to Russia and China. We cannot see things from their perspective. There's a there's an echo chamber in Washington which refuses to see NATO as anything but a defensive alliance that's always there for good, and any reaction of the Russians to it is bad. American policy is on autopilot and on so many things, and that's true certainly where Israel is concerned. Israel's security is sacrosanct on the Hill and among American policy. The people who are insecure are the Palestinians. And the people who are most, I should say, insecure are the Palestinians. But that's not the way it's seen on Capitol Hill. Israel is still seen as vulnerable and so on and so forth. How you change that really depends on the American public, on people who are changing in their views, finally having an impact on politics. And that may or may not be happening. I, I, I couldn't possibly predict that. But when and if it does happen, you have enormous inertia and enormous resistance. Uh, to overcome, to American interventionism generally in the Middle East and elsewhere, but also to the kind of knee-jerk, blind American support for anything any Israeli government does, whether because people believe that that's the right thing or because they're afraid to confront domestic supporters of Israel, who are now increasingly Republican, conservative, Southern, white, older evangelicals, much more uh, than used to be the case. Uh, and it is much less the case, especially among young people in the Jewish community, that they have a kind of knee-jerk, blind support. That, 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 that too is beginning. But it's been matched by a shift in the South and among evangelicals and Republicans to the blindest forms of devotion. 
Israel. So I, I don't know where that will go. I, I couldn't possibly. It is interesting to adapt the phrase, you know, that uh, often used that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And seemingly it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of hegemony of the United States and the Middle East. But we shall see so much more to come. Listen, again, the book, this is the book to get. You got to get a copy. It's available everywhere, but preferably from your local independent bookstore if you can. Again, the book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. Rashid Khalidi is the author. He's been with us here on Counterpunch. Rashid, thank you so much for all of the work for, and for a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Listeners, viewers, thank you as always for your continued support. We'll chat again next week.